You might have been able to be with us over these past few weeks as we've worked through um, the Easter series, four sessions, uh, and we've looked at the idea of Jesus by looking at elements of the gospel, but recognizing that it's not really understood fully just by reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those accounts of the life of Jesus. We go later on in the Bible where we have that explained. That's one of the great things about the Bible, is we see the way things are connected up. We see that there is linkage, there is centrality that all focuses in on Jesus, and specifically focuses in on the events of Easter. It, it kind of finds its, its meaning. The whole of the, the, the revelation of God finds its meaning in that moment, in those events over that period of time. Uh, and so, we're, we're hoping to do a few things as we conclude this series. Uh, if you want to catch up, they're all online, all on our website. What we're trying to do is we're trying to help us to understand how to read the Bible for one thing, but the other thing that we're trying to do is we're trying to get our eyes focused on how critically important Jesus is and how majestic He is as the unique person in the whole of human history and at the same time, as the Bible claims, no less than God present in this world. We're going to see why that's important. We're going to see why it has implications for us today. One of the things that I like about Easter is obviously it's a great time anyway, but after Easter, there's a great TV uh, series starts. Some of you might love it. Uh, anybody into MasterChef? We're, coming to, we're kind of moving towards that, those kind of moments, aren't we, where it starts getting narrowed down. Uh, and we might sit, we, I don't, I'm not sure where the winner is, at least I can't give you a spoiler this week, can I, and, and ru ruin the whole story. But one of the things that I've noticed over the past few series of MasterChef is a word creeping into recipes. And it's this word, if you've, you'll probably have noticed it, if you're avid MasterChef followers, the word deconstructed. Deconstructed everything is now in MasterChef. Uh, without going into all of the kind of philosophical issues uh, of what deconstruction means, and we'll not go there, we're not going down a postmodern journey today, I'm just really interested in the word deconstructed, and it, it kind of picks up this idea to me that, that deconstructed in one sense has a really good idea for us when we think about reading the Bible. I think because we are located where we are, 2,000 years after Jesus, because we've got the whole of the narrative of God in the world contained within those pages, we tend to eat our Bible a bit like most of us eat cheesecake. We take one great big spoonful and we get everything all in one go. We just kind of plunge it in and we swallow the whole lot. One of the great things about deconstructed cheesecakes is you get the opportunity to savor each little bit. You can pause a little bit. You can have a little, a proper taste of the base. Then you can have a proper taste of the filling and then, and then the topping. And then if you're really brave, you kind of go against all of the chef's ideas and you mix them all up and you have a bit of cheesecake. That's kind of what we're going to be doing this afternoon. We're going to be spending some time looking at 
each of the elements, seeing how they come together around this big theme. And we've looked at, firstly, we've looked at Jesus as the uh, great priest. We've looked at Jesus as the great prophet. And now we're going to be looking at Jesus as the great king. So keep deconstructed cheesecake lightly in your mind. Don't let it cloud everything. But we're going to work through that. I'm going to think about the idea of king. We need a king. That isn't a statement of my royalist kind of beliefs. We need somebody to rule over us in some way. It's a constant dilemma for humanity. How are we going to have some kind of authority and leadership which governs in a way which is right. Down through the centuries, we've seen throughout history, we've, we've been grappling with that problem. We've had the kind of absolute king appointed by God, absolute authority in every kind of way. We recognize that there are profound problems with that. And so Western Europe has moved increasingly to this idea of democracy, the idea of the tension of different views coming together in this democratic process. And yet, at the same time, we become tired and we become uh, kind of just, we fade with the disappointment of that process. Some have suggested that the shocks of some of the elections in the past uh, months up to, well, a hundred days ago and or 100 days and since, are all little indications of our disappointment, our unsettled experience of what it is to have this established leadership over us. Trump, Brexit, landslide elections. We need leaders. We need good leadership. Why? Just pause for a minute. For all our moaning, beefing, and griping, we need to be profoundly thankful to God that we live in a particular location where we have some semblance of peace, where we have some ideas of right rule. For all of the failures, that is our dilemma. We can't deny that we live under, compared to many locations in the world today, we live with some good, and yet at the same time, we are frustrated. We need good rule. Uh, Turkey has just gone through the experience, haven't they, of recognizing this problem. And there has been a referendum where Erdogan has uh, managed to secure sweeping changes and the rule, uh, the, the, the press are uh, recognizing that change of rule as this need to have stability. This kind of process of many voices has just caused us problems, and now we need more power in the hands of one person. All of these different things. I'm not saying one's right, one's wrong, what's, one's good, one's bad. What I am saying is no matter where we look, we recognize that all of the different structures that we try to put in place 
have flaws within them. We need good rule. Of course, the other idea, which we flirted with, I guess, in the 1970s, at least a whole group of disgruntled youngsters flirted with it when they painted their hair pink, pierced everything, and proclaimed anarchy in the UK. That is the alternative. We go down the line of some kind of individualistic, self-governed rule where my rules are just whatever I want to do. Do you see the dilemma that we are faced with? We are desperately in need of rule. You know, in, the, in a sense, that speaks, that paradox is precisely what we see played out in the Bible, and it's what we see played out in the people of God. To take us all the way back, if you like, step one, take our spoon and let's have a little taste, shall we, of the deconstructed story of Easter and taste a little bit of the base. We go all the way back to a man called Samuel. Samuel was one of God's appointed by God prophetic voices to lead God's people. And, and, and God's people had gathered together. They'd been freed from Egypt. They'd established themselves in the land. And Samuel was not a king, but he was placed as, if you like, the spokesman of God the spokesperson to speak into that situation in such a way that everybody knew it is not Samuel who is ruling over us. It is Samuel who is speaking because it is God ruling over us. That's the idea that they had. That was precious to them. Well, at least it was precious to Samuel. But over time, the inevitable happened. Samuel got old and he started to fade and people became disgruntled. They began to doubt. How can we really know that God is going to rule over us when Samuel is gone? It's a real challenge to them. And we read in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6, we read this. They said, this is the people speaking to Samuel, give us a king to lead us. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that amazing? That this idea of the desperate need for some kind of rule over us resulted in them saying, give us a king to rule over us. They looked around, they'd seen what all of the other nations had. And for all of the fear of those other nations... It looked stable. Give us a king to rule over us because we want to be like that rather than trusting that God is going to lead us. This displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you that they've rejected but they have rejected me as their king. Do you, see the, do you see the idea of what good rule was at that point? 
Do you see what God had instilled in the people and they were kicking against it? They were saying, we don't want this king that we can't see. We want a king that we can see. Because it's far easier to trust a king that we can see than a king that we can't see. It's far easier to have confidence in one that we can identify that the one, than one that we have to believe that we never see. In spite of the fact that they had been remarkably saved from Egypt, in spite of the fact that they had been taken through the wilderness, in spite of the fact that in all sorts of incredible ways, God had absolutely clearly identified himself. In spite of all of that, they said, we believe that we want a king like that that we can see. They've rejected me as their king, God said. As they have done from, that, from the day... Oh, sorry, let me read that again. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so, they're doing, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. It's, it's just the most, this is one of the most breathtaking little conversations in the whole of the storyline of the Bible. It is amazing, this conversation. God says to Samuel, I know that you feel that you failed, but it's me that they're rejecting. And they are behaving in exactly the same way as they've done all of the time that I've been leading them out of Egypt. This is nothing new. They've kicked against They've gone through this kind of ever-ebbing and flowing experience of following me, trusting me, then rejecting me, and then trusting me, then rejecting me, then serving other gods, and then coming back and, and serving me. This is what they are like. Now, just give them a king, but be very clear that as soon as they have a king, that king is going to claim rights over them. Because that's what powerful authorities always will do. They will always claim rights. They will always raise themselves above and demand. Any kind of power will always do that. And so, Samuel did precisely as God had said. And Saul was appointed, and if you know the storyline of the Bible, Saul turns out to be a desperately bad choice, a really bad choice. Then David becomes king, and we start, it it begins to look as though, oh, we're we're back on track now. And then we kind of level off, and we start to decline when Solomon becomes king. And from there on, we get this continued experience of one king after another, good, bad, but one absolute consistent pattern is that no king, whether good or evil, ever leads God's people in the way that God leads his people. Even the good King David, the one who most pointed to good authority, shaped like God, 
in little ways, abuses the people. It's an amazing moment. And so what do we see at this point? We see the first time that God's people reject their king by asking for a king. That's strange, isn't it? They reject their king by asking for a king. God says in these verses, I'm their king, and they say no. No, we won't have that king. We want our own king. You see, they were in exactly the same situation as we always are as the people of God. They are always in that dilemma as we are always in that dilemma. And it's this, can I really trust what I can't see? Can I really trust that God will protect me? God will always want the best for me. Can I really protect, can I trust Him tomorrow and the next day? Compared to, compared to somebody who speaks to me with a voice that I can hear. Can I really trust that kind of God? That's the challenge that they had. The idea of living in God's world as God's kingdom. Or the idea of living in God's world as my kingdom. That was their dilemma. It continues today. And it continued for God's people when we come into this moment of Easter. And at, the moment, at this moment of Easter, we we're asking ourselves, how does that idea of king prepare us for Jesus? Look at what happened. This is, by the way, this is, if, you, if you've still got your spoon in your hand, we're now into the filling, second little bit of deconstructed story of the Bible. We get into this moment where we say, if we need a king, what kind of king can we look to? And we see a king, and it is the most surprising king that we could ever imagine. At this moment in our narrative, in, uh, Leanne read it for us earlier, John chapter 19, we see a king who has been dragged through the streets, who has been beaten and battered, who has had a crown, but it's not a golden crown, it's a torturing crown of thorns that have been wrapped into the shape of a crown and rammed onto his hat. We've got a king who has worn the color purple, the stately color, briefly thrown over him by the Roman soldiers as they mocked him and beat him and then dragged the purple away and gave him a cross to carry through the city, out of the gate, and up the hill. What we now see is the greatest statement of that king as king. Pilate, in, in one of the great political maneuvers, though it, well, let me put it like this. There are moments where, you, let, let me try and word it very carefully, you know where I'm headed with this. There are moments when interesting and smart and politically astute leaders use a short number, very often 140 characters, <laughs> to kind of make a big statement. 
that they think is really powerful. In a sense, this is almost Pilate's tweet to the Jews. It was that provocative. That's what it was. We've seen it, haven't we? We've seen all sorts of people in authority tweeting out things which are kind of provocative and, and there to just get in the face of people. And this is Pilate's moment in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. He writes, has a sign written, and it's fastened to the cross, and it says this, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign. For the place where, the Jews was, where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? What, why did he do that? Why did he write it in all of those different languages? Well, the language of God's people around the area of Jerusalem at the time was absolutely Aramaic. But what we also know is because it was Passover time, there would have been many Jews who would have been the dispersed, the diaspora, and they would have been spread out in all sorts of other parts of the empire. Some of them might have found their way back to Jerusalem. Their first language might not have been Aramaic, might have been Greek or Latin. And so, for those Jews who were in the area who saw that sign, and to any other who was not a Jew, the message was, I've just killed the king of the Jews. This is victory. This is the absolute final statement. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews. You see, they could, they could almost have tweeted it back. Don't write the king of the Jews. It is exactly that kind of provocative conversation going on, backwards and forwards. You've said it there, it's this. Don't say that. Let's get clarity. He's, he's not the king of the Jews. Don't say the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. You can almost hear the kind of public relations spokesman for the temple making the statement back to the Roman authorities. Do you see that kind of conversation going on? This is a political battle, a statement of power, and yet remarkably, astoundingly, incredibly Against all of that, those that hate Jesus are making the most profound statement that could possibly be made, because this is the King of the Jews. This is the very one appointed by God, the very one who has been, they've been waiting for, because the political situation was precisely what the Jewish people recognized they were in desperate need of a new leader to free us, to liberate us. 
someone to redeem us, to save us. Because just as we saw when we looked at the promise that God made to Samuel, they will understand that there will be ebbs and flows, there will be good and bad. They were in a really bad place at this time. They were under Roman authority, power. The empire had swept into Jerusalem, taken over the authority. Puppet powers had been appointed. Herod had been appointed. And right at this moment, the very thing that God's people needed was a leader to liberate them, to save them, and to free them. And the very one who is doing the work of liberating, saving them, and freeing them is the one who has a sign above him saying, the King of the Jews. And the claim that the Bible makes <laughs> is that he is no less than God again. Remember when we look back, we're kind of going back to remember the flavor that we had from our first taste of the kind of king. And God says, I am their king. And they reject him. And now we have God, that was God distant who they rejected. Now we have God present. And what do they do? They reject him again. They say, don't say the king of the Jews, but that he said he's the king of the Jews. Because the last thing we would ever acknowledge is that Jesus is our king. And so, Jesus dies with a sign above his head which says, the king of the Jews in three languages. I just want to pause for a minute. I just want that scene to sink into our minds. Jesus dies on the cross, nailed to a cross, with a sign above him in three languages, saying, the King of the Jews. I, I, I wish we could just we could just frame that in our thinking and ask the question, how can we possibly believe that to be true? How can we believe a king dead on a cross? That's a key question, isn't it? And the answer, we come right the way through, as we said, we're, we're understanding the whole of the story of the Bible by understanding how Jesus is described from the book of Hebrews. We go right the way through to that book, and we understand that having recognized that the king has been rejected once, and the king has been rejected twice, we now recognize that we see the king recognized. We read this, Hebrews chapter 1. And verse 8, but about the Son, God says, this is about Jesus, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. How can 
How can Jesus, dead on a cross, with a sign above him saying, the King of the Jews, possibly be considered to be truly the King of the Jews? How is that possible? The only way, the only way it's possible is because he didn't stay dead. It's a, it is just as simple as that. It's a, in one sense, it is as simple as that. Jesus, dead on a cross, is no hope unless the whole of the story of Easter unfolds and proves to be true, that the dead king lives again. Do you see how critically important Easter is to the whole of the message of the Bible? I'll be really clear, it stands or falls by this. The whole of the message of the Bible, the whole of the message of God, according to the Christian faith, stands or falls by this claim, that the king who died on a cross came back to life. That, that, isn't, that isn't something that we can kind of play around with and, and tickle around the edges and say, well, you know, it, means, it could mean this and it could mean that. It is, it is making the most dramatic claim that Jesus physically died, was put in a grave, a physical stone was rolled in front of the grave, and three days later, he came back to life. Everything stands or falls by that. And he didn't die again. <laughs> and so we read in Hebrews the explanation of what the death of Jesus means, and it's this, that the one who died lives and is now enthroned. Do you see that? It's not totally clear. Well, it speaks about your throne, O God. He says it about the Son, your throne, O God, will last forever. And the scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. I want to take ourselves back. I've been watching, I'm a bit of a shadow when it comes to historical kind of documentaries, and there's been some great uh, Egyptology documentaries on recently, and um, looking at uh, Pyramuses, the, the, the kind of the disappeared city of Ramesses II that has been rediscovered. Every, every ruler, every in, uh, kind of um, image uh, of rulers carried some sort of state of authority, a scepter of authority. It was, it was the statement of power. It was the statement that says, my justice, because I carry this, is the justice which will be wielded. Uh, and that's, that's what we see portrayed here, that the Jesus who was nailed to a cross is now ascended and bears the scepter of justice. It says that his scepter, sorry, it says that his justice is the justice by which things will be judged. Isn't that an amazing picture? In other words, for all of the attempts 
of God's people to subvert the rule of God, God wins. God wins. For all of our attempts to subvert the rule of God, God wins. Having a ruler, having a king in the ancient world, when we read words like justice, when we go on and we read words like, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. When we read pictures like that, we, we are often troubled because we read them from our kind of world of democracy. And the idea of an absolute ruler it is a problem to us. But I want to take us all the way back to what we first said. We recognized that our ruler, well, well no, we recognize that we desperately need a ruler. But we also recognize that we have learned that every individual ruler who, who has absolute power has always ultimately been absolutely abusive. That's what we've learned. And so democracy has emerged. But what we also recognize is that even our democracy doesn't really work. And so we're left with this, this troubling dilemma. And here's the question. Imagine what it might be like if one absolute ruler was absolutely just. Imagine how that is a game changer. What kind of ruler might that be? What kind of ruler might that look like? Here's the, the kind of way in which the Bible focuses everything down to a moment where a pagan king put a statement above the Son of God that said the King of the Jews... And we're able to look at that and we are able to say, my king is the kind of king who loves me so much that he will pay the ultimate sacrifice. That is the kind of king that we need. You see, the kind of king that we desperately need is one who absolutely has his eyes fixed on us. And it isn't lessening to Him. You see, that's our problem with our, 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 our look towards other human beings. As soon as we put them in a place of, of authority, the only way in which they can sit there appropriately is by taking something from us. That's why, Jesus said, uh, that's why God said to His people, let them know that the king who will rule over them will claim his rights. He'll take from you. And the kind of king that we've got is the kind of king who stands above and yet at the same time sacrifices himself. Who gives himself. Who says, you are absolute. I am going to claim my rights. And my right is justice. And you can't pay. And I know that. And if you would recognize it, 
you would know what a serious situation we were in. But let me tell you this, I will pay. Isn't that an amazing king? Isn't that an amazing rule? And it doesn't diminish Jesus one little bit. In fact, it elevates him. It makes him more supreme than anything we could ever imagine. Because he sits there, and John describes him as the lamb that was slain on a throne. (laughs) Describes him as this slain ruler enthroned. And so Jesus, in some sense, is always carrying the marks of what he has done eternally for those who he has saved. So as we conclude this run through Easter, as we've taken our, our kind of deconstructed flavor of the message of the Bible and we've taken our base from, from back in Samuel, then we've taken the filling from the moment of the cross and then the topping, as we've have it, had it explained in Hebrews, here's the question that we are faced with. Is the king that is presented to us worthy of our allegiance? Simple as, really. Is the king presented worthy of our allegiance? Or will we continue to do what God's people have done in the Old Testament when we said, no, we'll have our own king, thank you. And as they said to Jesus, no, we'll not have you, we'll we'll lead our own way, thank you. Will we continue to do that? Because the king who carries the rule of justice is also the king who will judge. 